0: Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 28, near to the very end, we'll begin in verse 16. <clears throat> in this chapter, we read of Paul's final interaction recorded in, in Acts, um, and this time it's with the Jews in Rome. Now the book of Acts is a record of the establishing of the church of Jesus Christ after Christ has ascended into heaven. And what he said is in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts you see that progression Taking place, that the gospel goes from Jerusalem and into Judea, and Judea is, you know, Jerusalem's the town, Judea's the state, if you will, and, and then out to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is takes up a, a substantial portion of the book of Acts because he's one of the, the few men that's really traveling in, in the much broader region on his missionary journeys. And so <clears throat> he arrives in Rome and we've it, it, by the time you get to this point if you read through the book of acts you've you've seen him interact with jews and with people in other especially the jews in other cities on his journey okay now obviously he interacts with many more people than just jews because he was sent to the gentiles but he always he always has these interactions with People who claim to be the followers of God. And the question is always, how are the Jews going to respond? And typically the answer is, the Jews are not responding well to the proclamation of the gospel. Their accusations against Paul are why he has been under arrest for a couple of years by the time we get to this passage. And they're why he is in Rome, because their continued attacks on Paul lead to him, fearing for his safety, appealing to the emperor. This was something that he had the right to do as a Roman citizen that most other people didn't have the right to do. But he says, I don't trust what's going on over here where the Jews have influence I appeal to Rome. I appeal to the emperor to make the judgment in my case. Now the weird thing is, when Paul arrives in Rome, the Jews have not sent word to Rome to stir up trouble against Paul like they were doing in other places. So Paul would, the the, the Jews would chase him out of town, run him out on a rail, and then he'd go to the next city, and sometimes what would happen is the Jews would send people after him to warn everybody, all the Jews in the next town that Paul's in, not to listen to him and begin to stir up trouble in the next town. In this case, the Jews in Rome haven't heard of Paul, don't know anything about what's going on, and so he gets the chance to start fresh, clean slate with this group. And um, so of course he does what he does everywhere where he goes, which is he proclaims the gospel. He speaks to them of Jesus Christ. He lets them know that Jesus is the Messiah and that they must worship him. But again in Rome there was not a general acceptance of what he said. It wasn't like Everybody, all the Jews in the synagogue unanimously decided, oh yeah, let's go ahead and worship Jesus. There was disagreement, and we'll see that in our passage. But what I want us to note today <clears throat> is Paul's dependence on the Holy Spirit. Paul is dependent on the Holy Spirit as he does his work and his work is seeking the salvation of his people, the people who are hearing him, but they are, they're, they're his people, right? And so he has a special place in his heart for the Jews because he was a Jew, a Jew of Jews, in fact. And I want you to note how little we consider the Holy Spirit today. How much of the time we rely on any other sort of strength, any other sort of human reasoning and experience in order to decide how we're going to approach something. So regardless whether your work is preaching the gospel to your people, like like Paul, and then preaching it to not your people, like Paul, or whether your work is... uh, doing school for you kids, or cleaning bathrooms, or whether your work is raising children, whatever your work is today, you must do it in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit. That's what we see Paul being an example for us in his doing. And so think about, as we read, think about how you would react to somebody today doing what Paul does, all right? Because what Paul does is rather unexpected. Take off your Bible reading glasses where everything is normal. You know what I'm talking about? Those glasses where it just makes everything look and sound the same. Nothing's surprising because it's in the Bible. Nothing's shocking. Okay, take those off. And be shocked. Don't be prevented from thinking about what you're reading. And think about whether you approve of what Paul does here. Okay? So let's read. Please stand as we read God's word from Acts 28, 16 to 31. When we entered Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, They were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Paul tried to convince all those Jews to believe in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> But clearly, he failed to win many of them. Now, the question is, was he failing in that work to the extent that he did fail? Obviously, some believed, right? And some didn't. And there was disagreement among them. But he failed to win many of them. Was that failure because he had the wrong technique? Was it because he had the wrong technique? Was it because he went too long? From morning until evening, it says. Was it because he was offensive? I said before I started reading, I wanted you to evaluate how Paul speaks to the Jews and see whether it would offend you. So let's go back and try to figure out what caused the Jews not to repent. And there's two choices here. The one choice is that Paul is right in what he does and about why they are not believing. And the other choice is really that Paul is wrong in what he did and about his reason. You see that? Because He explains why they won't believe at the end. That's what he says to them. But if I had to judge what Paul did here, I'd say it looks an awful lot like a case of bad sportsmanship. He's upset that he didn't win, that he didn't cause them to agree with him after spending a day working on it. And so then, what does he do? He starts to try to get under their skin and make them mad by insulting them? Are we going to turn to spiritual answers or earthly answers first in our life? Paul turns to a spiritual answer to what's going on. And today, the spiritual world is ignored. There's always an explanation for what's going on that's not spiritual, right? I believe in science, as one guy said to me last week. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't believe in the spiritual world. I don't believe in the spiritual realm. I don't believe that anything happens that cannot simply be explained by the laws of physics and chemistry and so forth. Anything that happens has an explanation in the physical world, right? And so we Christians today still are tempted to have that exact attitude towards why things are happening explaining what's going on we look with the expectation that everything can be explained scientifically or at least logically and so we're inclined to evaluate things based on logic and pragmatically looking at the outcome rather than by what the holy spirit has revealed Do you guys see that in yourself? I, I certainly see it in myself that <clears throat> somebody gets sick and, and obviously there's no spiritual component to them getting sick. It's just a matter of hand washing and germs and, and the physical laws of how disease spreads and so forth, Right? Does hand-washing help prevent disease? By all means, right? Is there a physical, scientific explanation for, for most everything that happens in this physical, earthly world? Yes. And yet, and yet what? And yet, there's not a division between the spiritual and the physical. And so, you can look at what's going on with the Jews here, and you can come up with a reasonable, logical explanation of why they do or don't want to listen to Paul, why they do or don't want to believe in Jesus. And yet, Paul then says, here's what's really going on in the spiritual realm. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy when he said, your ears and your eyes will be closed. I had a good time thinking about if Paul had hired a gospel-centered consultant to help him improve the outcome of his ministry. You guys know that there are gospel-centered consultants, right? For churches, for ministries, and so forth. You want to succeed in your work as a church planner. They've got plans that you can follow to help you succeed. There is... A simple path that you can follow. You guys know this? Some of you don't know this. That's okay. There are simple paths that you can follow. First, you have to make sure that you have the right skill set. I don't. I took the tests. I don't have that skill set. So I'm already going to fail automatically. Then you've got to make sure that you get in the right place. You've got to get connected to the right people. Then you got to make sure that you dress appropriately for those people, then you've got to make sure, you just go down the line, they'll tell you every last thing that you need to do, and if you follow their plan, you will succeed. And I don't say that facetiously. You will succeed if success is measured by their terms of success. If you do appropriately follow the, the steps... You will see the outcome. And this has been going on for a long time. It's, before there were consultants, there were, there were groups of churches that had become good at it. The vineyard was good at this back in the day. I don't know if they still are. <clears throat> you do this, you do the next thing, you do the next thing. The church is established, it grows, and so forth. Are there things that are good in those lists? Absolutely. Are there things you can and should do? Absolutely. All right? But what it leaves entirely out of the picture is what? The Holy Spirit. It leaves the Holy Spirit entirely out of the picture. So you think about Paul with his consultant sitting behind him, just observing for a week as he arrives in Rome. I just can't can't stop laughing thinking about this. And after a whole day of watching him and taking notes in his gospel-centered notebook, right, What's he going to say to Paul after what we just read? Paul, Paul, Paul. You never learn, do you? (laughs) Don't you remember when you were speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem about Jesus? When you stated flat out that Jesus said, go for I will send you to the Gentiles, you started a riot and they tried to kill you. Why would you repeat that mistake? you know that they don't like hearing that. Your whole idea, this technique that you have of trying to make the Jews jealous in order to bring them to Christ is obviously flawed. It's not working out for you. Let's come up with a new technique. But even if I can't convince you to give up that tactic, at least let me help you learn to warm them up to the topic. Be a little bit more gentle, a little bit more... I don't know what what it is with you, Paul. Why you feel like you've got to be so aggressive when you say that particular thing. You've got to learn to be tactful in bringing up such a sensitive subject. It takes a diplomatic touch. And speaking of diplomatic, insulting their fathers was not your most brilliant move in the last few weeks. Remember how I was trying to say to you in conversations and in teaching, don't ever shut the door. Don't worry, we can clean this up. It's not going to be easy. But if you let me go and talk to, what's his name, that wealthy Jew and explain that you didn't mean it that way, and then if you apologize for communicating poorly, you might be able to get a second hearing next week. And this time, just stick to the basics of the gospel, please, Paul. And don't go off from your notes. I'll go over with them. I'll go over them with you beforehand. Make sure there's nothing offensive in there. That may sound absurd to you guys, but it's not absurd. Those are, a lot of those things are quotes. <laughs> from conversations I've had with people. We think that we know better than Paul, and we think that we know better than the Holy Spirit, ultimately, <clears throat> how to win people to the gospel. But if you think about our sermons back at the beginning of John, you remember Nicodemus coming and Jesus says to him, what? He says, the Holy Spirit moves where he he will. Like the wind. You don't, you don't know where he's coming from. You don't know where he's going. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings new birth. And so you can follow all of these rules. You can, you can do it right. And unless the Holy Spirit begins to work, you will not see success according to God's judgment of success. If there's no Holy Spirit component when we look at people in this world, then what we are inclined to do is rely entirely on our own strength, our own powers, to accomplish what we desire rather than depending on the Holy Spirit, to accomplish His will. So those are, those are the two opposing things. God's will and our will, God's power and our power. And they can be worlds apart, or we can submit ourselves with make, and make our will His will. and then proceed by his means to what he has defined as success. Back in the 1800s, Charles Finney was a man who was an evangelist, a, a preacher who uh, who knew all of the right ways to do things. He was the first uh, The first one to write down a list of all of the correct steps you needed to take in order to win people to Jesus. Probably not the first, but here's what he wrote He said, There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. Listen to that. Where's the Holy Spirit? Nowhere. There is nothing. In religion, beyond the ordinary powers of nature, a revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle, in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. What is any other effect? It's that if I kick this, it's going to fall over, right? I've done it before while I was preaching, that's why. You know, if I, if I push against this thing on wheels, it slides. That's, that's the physical world. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's, that's all he's saying. There is nothing beyond simple action and reaction. You can put it together and get the results that you want. He says a revival is as naturally a result of the use of means as a crop is of the use of its appropriate means. And so he's saying, if you plant, if you water, it will grow. Now, any farmer could have told him that he was full of it. Because you can plant and water and not have growth, can't you? What does the Bible say? The Bible says you can plant and you can water, but it is God who causes the growth. And that's talking about the physical earthly plants. And then applying it to the spiritual realm. And saying that you must plant the gospel seed. It must be watered by the preaching of the word but it is God who causes the growth. Finney's claim was that if you just use the right method, people would become Christians in droves. And in fact, that is what seemed to happen when he held meetings. Thousands would show up. Many would be influenced to give their lives to Christ. And this is what he wrote later on in his life. He said, I was often instrumental in bringing Christians under great conviction and into a state of temporary repentance and faith, but falling short of urging them up to a point where they would become so acquainted with Christ as to abide in him. They would, of course, soon relapse into their former state. This is him evaluating his own fruit. And what's he saying? He's saying it looked great, it looked like I was accomplishing amazing things, but in reality there wasn't any lasting fruit there. You could summarize it by saying, I wasn't making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what one of the big modern movements of church growth, when they took a step back and evaluated their work. That was their exact description. This was <clears throat> Willow Creek after many years of applying the same kinds of growth techniques and a philosophy that it's all natural reaction and so forth. They took a step back and they evaluated their ministry and they said, you know, we've, we've brought a lot of people into the church, but we've failed to make disciples of Jesus Christ. what are they saying? The Holy Spirit isn't present. The Holy Spirit isn't at work. Because the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit begins to work, when the Holy Spirit changes somebody's life, it is a miracle. They are changed. And they're changed in such an amazing fundamental, miraculous way that you call it being born again. You, you call it being made a new person, regeneration, remade. You're changed from the inside out when the Holy Spirit works, not from the outside in. And because the Holy Spirit was not involved in bringing them to whatever temporary state they were in, whatever it was that Finney was accomplishing. There was no spiritual fruit. We hardly have eyes to see the spiritual today. And so a temptation, even among Christians, is when talking to somebody, to have our concern... Totally uh, filled up with their outward behavior. That outward behavior that's causing the undesirable consequences in their life. Sin, right? And the consequences of sin. And even if we as Christians, in, in, in talking to them, getting to know them, take those things that we learn about them and the sin that we see and apply it in some sort of a spiritual way to judge, you know, I don't think this person's a Christian. They're sleeping around and doing drugs and on and on and on down the line and they're not going to church and praying and reading the Bible and so forth. It's like, okay, you can, you can make a spiritual judgment there, a discern right there, whether you think they're Christians or not, right? <clears throat> we still often get confused about what they need at that point, right? You, because because what, we, what we're inclined to say they need is they need to stop doing that. And then they won't have all of those problems. They won't end up in the ER, and they won't end up in jail, and they won't end up with STDs, and they won't end up with all of the problems, all of the consequences that flow from our sin. And it's true, if they could stop sinning, they'd be in a better spot. But they can't. Not without the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to what Paul says to the Jews. He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them, what? That, that's where you, we would try to persuade them to stop doing X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, right? But Paul does not do that. He's, it's, he's trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, From both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. Paul does not stay in this physical realm at all. He's speaking of the kingdom of God and he's trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. And he's doing it by using the words that the Holy Spirit gave him, the Old Testament. He's using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as it says in Ephesians 6.17. And the result, as we see in verse 24, is that some were being persuaded by the things spoken, and others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. And his parting word wasn't, well, if you ever want to reconsider, I'd love to talk to you further about it. That's the leaving the door open thing I was talking about, you know. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you understand? That's a perfectly fine to say, it's a thing to say, sometimes, maybe. But what we've got to recognize is that it's also a good and, and perfectly fine thing to say what Paul says. And that's the part that's the trouble for us. what does he say? It was such a pleasure engaging in an amicable discussion with men who think so carefully and have such refined tastes and never rock the boat. I would enjoy doing it again on a further occasion. Next time you bring the scotch. Paul rocks the boat at the end. He says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. That's the, uh, you know, as if it wasn't bad enough that he would insult the men in front of him, he also starts insulting their fathers, right? Saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. This is a judgment that is meant to shock you, and cause you to reevaluate whether you've been listening at all. But it's more than that, it's a judgment that the Holy Spirit is not working in them to bring them to repentance. But, and this is where it gets very, very uncomfortable for us, it's actually more than that. It's a judgment that the Holy Spirit is now preventing them from hearing and understanding and returning. Do you see that? Paul is quoting Isaiah who says what God is going to do. Isaiah 6.10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Now we've gone from maybe being able to convince yourself that this is a passive thing that the people are accomplishing on themselves. You go back to Isaiah It says, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. That's what he's accomplishing. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. As Paul says it, though, it has already happened, has become dull. Paul was speaking and working in reliance on the Holy Spirit. Are we willing for others to do the same today? For those sorts of sharp words to be used when people reject the truth. I think of a conversation I had a few months ago with a man who claimed to be a follower of God claimed to be a Christian and yet he rejected any notion of the judgment of God any notion of atonement propitiation this man was not a Christian and He rejected there being any concept or sort of hell or punishment. And so what is faithfulness to him in ending that conversation? Faithfulness is saying, unless you repent, you will suffer the fires of hell that you do not believe exist to end the conversation with him having declared there is no such thing, and for me to not warn him that that is what he will face. How could I do that? And that's when the boat begins to shake violently, isn't it? Because up until that point, everything is theoretical. Everything remains in this earthly realm. It's all philosophical, as Finney put it. Right? And so I can argue with him philosophically until I'm blue in the face. But the Word of God must be proclaimed. And the Word of God is sharp and it cuts. So it's, it's nice uh, for you guys to have a pastor who will uh, be sharp, right? And so that you don't have to. Are you willing to rely on the Holy Spirit in your conversations with others? Are you after your goals... Or are you after God's goals? <clears throat> I've got this great book that I've been halfway through for about a year now. <clears throat> uh, free, I think it's called "Freeing Yourself from the Success Syndrome." It's a book two pastors, to, written by a man who planted a church and it folded, and he was so uh, he was under so much. Pressure and so much uh, um, d- d- discouragement and, and depression because he was convinced that he had failed. And then he and his wife sat down and began to read the Bible, and they realized they hadn't failed. Because success in the world's eyes is different than success in God's eyes. And so each chapter is a different category of obedience to God, and that's what success is in our lives. If we're after our own goals, you may or may not get them. I mean, some people decide, you know what, by the time I'm 25, I'm going to be a millionaire. And some of them, they do it. Right? Does that make them a success? Well, sure, yeah, a success in the world's eyes, right? But does it make them a success? Does it make them successful? Does it it make them even happy? Forget judging spiritually for a second. You can still remain in the earthly realm and realize there's problems still. The point here is... What the Jews needed to hear was that they were rejecting the God of their fathers. The Holy Spirit was closing their hearts. The Jews needed to hear that they must repent of their hardness of heart, of their dullness of ear. If you're seeking after your own goal, you won't pray. You won't ever think of praying until God forces your hand by making you so miserable that you realize the only thing left to do is to pray. And this is so often the life of Christians. How absurd that we wouldn't think of prayer. if you already know what your own goals are and what you're seeking after, you won't bother reading the Bible either. Because you don't need to know what He says. But if you want to know what His will is, you'll read the Bible, won't you? If you're seeking after your own goals, you won't say, as our Savior Jesus said, Your will be done. And so we must be willing to speak what we know to be true. Yes, in love. Yes, by faith. Even when we're convinced it will make people scoff or angry or cause no end to problems for us, this is the story of Paul's life. There is no end to the problems that Paul faces because he was willing to speak by faith the words of God to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And we must realize that the spiritual realm and the physical realm, God is at work through both of those things. And so he sends sickness so that we might repent. He sends suffering so that we might seek Him. Well, your suffering isn't from God. It's just because you got hit by a car. There's a purely physical explanation for what's going on here. Don't try to read anything spiritual into it. Don't you realize the danger of that? You might become morbidly introspective. Yeah, you might. Don't do that. (laughs) But don't ignore the spiritual realm. It's real. God is at work in this life, in this physical world, with spiritual realities. And so, when we speak the truth in love, as Paul was doing here, This was Paul loving his people, the Jews. Then we will realize that none of our words can affect change in somebody apart from the Holy Spirit working. And then we'll be willing to speak the Holy Spirit's words knowing that the outcome is in his hands. And that's the thing that's So joyful here. Yeah, it's sad to Paul that however many of the people there, they were arguing with each other. Some of them were agreeing and believing, and some of them weren't. And what does he do? He spends the next two years continuing the conversation. Teaching, preaching. But Paul knows that the outcome is in God's hands. And so he trusts him, and he continues to proclaim God's words. The outcome is in God's hands in your life, too. Not just in conversations with other people, right? But all of the work that you've been given to do. Unless the Lord builds the house, he labors in vain who builds it, the worker. Whatever your work is, It's in vain unless God is at work through you. And the beautiful thing about that is, even building a house, such a physical thing, God can be at work. even getting transferred from Jerusalem to Rome. God is at work. Let's pray.